0: People like me think, oh, we know all about corals. But in fact, take a closer look, we don't. Corals are amazingly inventive organisms. And that's where my hope largely rests.
1: Thank you for being part of the 100 Climate Conversations. Today is number 14 of 100 conversations happening every Friday. The series presents 100 visionary Australians that are taking positive action to respond to the most critical issue of our time, climate change. We're broadcasting today from the boiler room of the Powerhouse Museum, and this actually used to be the Ultimo power station. This was built in 1899 and it supplied coal powered electricity to Sydney's tram system in the 1960s as well, unbeknownst to them, of course, helping to create the very problem we come here to speak about today. I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation on whose land we meet today and, of course, pay my respects to the Elders past and present and acknowledge, of course, their custodianship of the land we're on for many years. I'm Craig Rucastle. You might know me from The Chaser or War and Waste or Fight for Planet A, shows like that. Let's turn, though, to the truly amazing person we have with us. Dr. John Charlie Varon is an international authority on coral and a long-time champion of the Great Barrier Reef. In his over 50 year long career, Varon identified 20% of the world's known coral species. Varon was the first scientist to be employed by the Australian Institute of Marine Science, becoming chief scientist of the organization in 1997. He's the author of over 100 publications, including his popular 2017 memoir, A Life Underwater. We're so thrilled to have him join us today. Welcome, Charlie. Good to be here. Now, you've been referred to as the godfather of coral and the guardian of the reef. Growing up, did you always have a love of the natural world?
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, when I was a little, tiny kid, I used to um, go down to Long Reef in Sydney and rip off <laughs> animals at Long Reef. Little kids did then, Don't I mean, now I hope. And <laughs> I kept them in an aquarium. And um, I guess one of the things that I had which was of doubtful value, was a little octopus. And I kept that in the aquarium for about a year. His name was Oki, And uh, he, used to, he used to crawl up my arm and take a little bit of meat from my arm, crab, or every morning, he'd come when he was called. He knew my voice, and out, out he would come. And he'd go back to a little cave I, I made for him and flash little blue rings at me to say thank you. It wasn't known then that the Sydney blue ringed octopus is one of the most deadly things in the oceans. And he did that for a whole year. It's extraordinary. He never bit me. He never bit you. You He never bit, well,
1: I wouldn't be here no. no, You seem to be kind of at one with nature. And you know, you couldn't have thought of a better kind of career for you as it ended up. I mean, you became the first full time Great Barrier Reef researcher in 1972. How much was known about the Great Barrier Reef at this time?
0: Very, very little. It was mostly the domain of um, geologists worried about um, oil drilling and mining. And we ran the first expedition to the far northern Great Barrier Reef, first people to dive on the outer face. It was a time of real exploration. And I wasn't even aware of how much we didn't know. But I used to get these phone calls from Canberra for a while, asking me weird questions. And then Gough Whitlam suddenly appeared and announced that the whole place was going to be a, a giant ma- national park because at that time it wasn't even known to be Australian territory or waters. Uh, there was a three-mile limit, and the Great Barrier Reef at high tide is submerged. Who owned the Great
1: Barrier Reef? Mm-hmm. That, that seems to be quite ahead of its time to actually. Oh, completely. So little was its known time. about it, and yet to turn it into this marine park.
0: Yeah, that has been a fundamentally important thing as. Then there was a lot of talk about conservation on the Great Barrier Reef, but that came to an end when the Joby Ockie Peterson government of Queensland was thrown out and all the mining leases, all the drilling leases, all canceled, the entire Great Barrier Reef. And um, now heaven help anyone (laughs) who imagined they could take anything from the Great Barrier Reef. In those days, it was all up for grabs.
1: So I guess at that time you would have thought the reef is protected, you know, you, it's, a, it's a marine park, the mining's not happening, it's healthy. When did you, when no, did it become apparent?
0: I, par- when did I didn't think it needed protecting. Yeah, The Marine Park Authority got set up, well that's a waste of money. It's so it's big, it's just, it doesn't even after itself. It doesn't need
1: protecting. So when did wrong. you first realise that there was this other threat to the reef, this threat of climate change? Well, I mean, when did was... that become apparent to you? Oh, yeah.
0: I published a book in 1986 uh, on corals of Australia and in the Indo-Pacific, and that was to bring the world of corals to the general public. And in it is a couple of pictures of a, of a white coral, which, and I sort of kept track of these white corals—only a few of them—and they died. And I thought that's strange, and then somehow I thought they were suffering from heat. And this is the back in the early 1980s. Mm. And uh, then I heard about climate change. And frankly, I thought, what a ridiculous idea that is. How could humans possibly change the climate of this planet? Until I reached up on it. This is before Google, of course, mm. before computers. before all that. And I, I got a, a book off the shelf. I have lots of books. And looked up the properties of carbon dioxide. And thought, Oh my gosh, it can. So then overnight, I thought, this climate change business, this is for real. And it was, oh, a decade after that, that I really started to worry that it was affecting the temperature on the Great Barrier Reef, and it was linked to bleaching of corals. A friend of mine at the University of Queensland, he did the first physiology in this, And his results were very interesting, and I still thought it was not a big deal until I was working in Japan, and I came across a bay which was really isolated. There were no people, no roads, no nothing, and all the corals were white. And that was the first time I'd seen a mass bleaching. And I thought, something like this has been noticed on bits of the Great Barrier Reef. And that's when I first realised there was a connection between climate change and bleaching of corals. Mm. Mm.
1: Firstly, I think the amazing thing about you, you, your experience on the reef is you've been diving for so many years. Like, if I go up to the reef and dive, there's still moments of beauty. There's still beautiful bits around. But I don't know what it used to be like. Take us back to when you first over the Great, Great Barrier Reef. What did it look like? How is it different to how it is now?
0: Well, first time, I hitched up to Gladstone and got on the boat to Heron Island, dived over the edge and swimming on, and I was absolutely gobsmacked. I'd never seen anything so beautiful in all my life. It wasn't just the corals, it was the massive life. You, life was all around you. you. It was three-dimensional for a start, and, it was so engaging completely, it just took over. And I would stay out on the reef all day long until I was absolutely
1: exhausted. How different would it look though, from that, the, that, that experience when you were diving then to now? How much of the Great Barrier Reef have we lost at this point?
0: If I was to be in a time capsule and could go back and compare then and now, 95%, something like that. It doesn't look anything like it did once.
1: You spoke about not just the beauty of the reef, but the fact that there's so many animals around you, so much marine life around you. How important is a reef for the animals?
0: What a coral reef is, is a place where animal life can exist because it pretends it's a plant. They have algae in their tissues and they can use sunlight to grow. And they form these skeletons which are wave resistant. That's what coral reefs are. They are things that grow at the interface between the land and the sea and the air, and nothing else grows there. And that makes coral reefs so very, very special uh, for everything else, because it's now at least, maybe even 70, 80% of all marine species have some part of their life cycle in the coral reef. And you've only got to swim over a coral reef, and you can see why. If you're swimming over a coral reef, there's lots of little fish everywhere. But as you swim towards them, they'll disappear into the coral. And they're protected by the coral. And down deeper into the coral, there's little tiny things, larvae of everything. Now, if that coral dies and just turns into rubble, all that protection goes. And so we're not just worried about the loss of the beauty of a coral reef. Mm. We're worried about... uh, the biggest, the most essential part of the ecology of mm. the entire ocean.
1: So if we take away that home for the marine life, what is the flow and effects? Ecological collapse of the oceans. And this has happened
0: many times in the geological path, well over 30 times. Five of those times have been ultra dramatic, and they we call the mass extinctions. It's, it's a, uh, a misunderstood thing because the mass extinctions take a long, 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 long long time, except for the last one, which is due to a a gigantic asteroid hitting the Gulf of Mexico. But most, all the other mass extinctions, they've taken a million or more years to come about as the chemistry of the ocean changes because of carbon dioxide. So the carbon dioxide uh, changes the alkalinity of the ocean surface. And that means that anything that is made of calcium carbonate is in danger. And that's what's happening now. It is straight out chemistry. It's when the ocean absorbs carbon dioxide, which it does. Mm. Uh, Now this has happened many, many times in the geological past. Um, But this time, it's happening to us in our time. Mm. And it's also happening much quicker than in all the geological past events, except when an asteroid hits the Earth. Yeah, and well, even then, it's taken hundreds of thousands of years.
1: It's frightening what you say, but it's also that human thing of like, oh, 100,000 years. It's a timescale we don't really deal with. You know, do you think that that's been part of the problem of getting people to respond to this? We don't really, we can't look into the future. Anymore. Yeah,
0: it's, that is the problem. We are human and we're geared to the here and now. And so further and further, the time mm. away, the less panic for us it is. It's not that big a deal for most people until they realise that a century down the line the world is going to look nothing like it does now. And as I've said often, I'm likely to outlive the Great Barrier Reef and for me that's a mega horrible thought Yeah. because I just so much love that place.
1: Well, you do love that place and you've... You've named, you know, around 20% of the corals. Why did you think it was so important to kind of name it and categorise the corals? I
0: don't. That's what the press says. (laughs) I don't. (laughs) You don't? No, I don't. What is important (laughs) is to know what's out there. The whole science of understanding is not about naming things. It's about um, knowing what's there. The last thing I want to do is to find a new name. I'm not good at names. They're boring. And so I try to find an old one. And so uh, for X percentage of corals, I fail to find an old name. It's a failure, not a
1: success. But I guess it's not necessarily about the name, but as you say, it's it's about knowing what's there so that you can track the changes.
0: What I did in most of my life is take the taxonomy of corals from the museum to the reef. And the taxonomy of of corals in museums has got almost nothing in common with what you see underwater. What you see underwater uh, varies, anyone can see, it varies enormously to where you happen to be swimming. And if you're a scuba diver, you can dive down a reef slope, all the corals change, the shape and so on. It's the same species, but it it forms different shapes and has different structures as you go down the slope. That's not reflected at all in the museum specimens. The foremost coral taxonomist of that old era, he was with me in the Marshall Islands and he said, Charlie, look, in this latest volume of yours, I find it absolutely unbelievable what you've done. You've said all this is one species. I said, yes, John, and it's quite a common one here. And so I grabbed my tank and laundry basket, where I put things in, went down 50 metres or so and collected this species all out the slope. And then I cleaned them all and laid them out on a, on a big bench and let him loose. And he <laughs> spent hours pottering up and down. So it's amazing. all you, the
1: one species. As you say, though, like it's all the one species, but it's different at every depth. We can't recreate the reef outside. It's something that, you know, if we lose it from that capacity, it's going to be very difficult to get back.
0: So this taxonomy for me is, uh, it has to be like plants, you need a name for them. We've got 600 species of eucalypts or so. Uh, They've got to have a name because that name means you can photograph it, you can map it, you can describe it. You can't do that to something that's abstract.
1: You said that you started off initially being skeptical about the climate change, but obviously once you read into it, you became convinced that it was gonna have devastating effects on the reef. And in 2009, you appeared with David Attenborough at the Royal Society of London. So I guess, ring the kind of warning bell there.
0: Well, what happened when I realised climate change was real, and I realised its impact on the coral reefs, I was, at that time, there happened to be a lot of arguments between me and the director of my institute of changed marine science and I said to him, look, I might clear off for at least a year and take half long service leave and half research. He signed off on that because he's just glad to get me out of the place. <laughs> I was such a troublemaker. And so with my family, we went to France and I studied climate change from all different aspects, much more so than I've ever done for a university degree. and. Uh, It's geology, it's chemistry, it's genetics, and I put it all together in a book, and it's called A Reef in Time, The Great Barrier Reef from Beginning to End. End. Mm. I mean, that drew attention as it was designed to do. That presentation at the Royal Society in London just went absolutely everywhere. And for me, that was personally a good thing from all sorts of point of view, and one of those was I knew more about the future of climate change than anybody. And it's not because I was a whiz-bang scientist. It was because a lot of American um, climatologists had been funded by Exxon on the condition they would only publish their work in scientific journals. If they were, they could be really nailed by Exxon if they ever spoke in public or wrote anything for the general public. Well, I'm not beholden to Exxon. They gave all their stuff to me. And so by the time I arrived at this Royal Society meeting, I knew more about climate change than anybody on the planet.
1: What was the response at the time from, I guess, the public and also scientists?
0: Well, in my own institute, I was just blacklisted completely. Really? And uh, the uh, response of other scientists was glee, pat on the back. I, I was very, very popular. And I have to say, that irritated me somewhat because. They would say, Charlie, look, you really need to talk about this or that. I said, Why don't you talk about this or that? Well, I, ca- I can't. I'm not allowed to. And they'd also say, well, it's all very well for you. You've got tenure. But when I started talking, I didn't have tenure at all when I started talking about um, things that I wasn't supposed to talk about. Mm. But it is true. If their job is threatened, they are muzzled to some extent and... They've got their family to look out, they've got their careers to to worry about. I think that is changing but it's got a long, long, long way to go.
1: It is interesting that because I have noticed that in talking to many climate scientists and talking to you over the years, you do seem to have a, a greater freedom to speak or at least you don't feel as constrained as others. Do you think there's been a problem in communicating the challenges and that people have been constrained?
0: Oh, yeah. I'm a real busybody when it comes to science. I love knowing everybody else's subject. And that's difficult because first of all, you've got to get on top of the jargon. Jargon is what keeps science from the general public. You've got to know all these complicated names. Mm. You've got to know the difference between the Carboniferous and the Cretaceous. There's nothing in that that's common, but you've got to know it. And so um, I've always been able to translate all these different sciences and I can then give it to a bigger Mm. uh, audience or bigger readership. And I love doing that, bringing science to the general public.
1: Do you think there has been a problem in communicating the challenge of climate change to the general public because of the technical nature of academic speak and scientific speak? Has that been a real challenge for scientists?
0: Oh, absolutely. There were two things about that. One is the actual science itself. And what scientists love doing is explaining their science, talking about their science. And if that's not followable, they sort of shout louder. They don't change what they're saying to make it palatable Mm. to other people. I sometimes cringe when I hear a scientist being interviewed because they, in their head, think they're talking to other scientists. They're not, Mm. they're talking to non-scientists. And if they don't think that, they're not getting the message across. And the other thing was the Australian government for a long, long time was not wanting scientists to speak out about climate change. And in fact, um, at my institute, we were prohibited from talking. And I just said, up yours to the director. I had tenure. He couldn't sack me, but he could take everything else away from me and did. Uh, I decided then that I would speak out. And that was a big decision because like the scientists of that time, we're talking about uh, 15 years ago, scientists didn't see themselves as people that should be in front of a, a camera. Mm. Um, they saw themselves as people that talk science to other scientists. And maybe a journalist could listen on and make what they could of it. And I made a a decision. In my memoir, I call myself a media tart. <laughs> and I have been a media tart for 15 years at least. Uh, as soon as a camera turns up, I will talk to it. And I took every opportunity to talk to it. And we're talking now hundreds upon hundreds mm. of episodes in front of a camera. Because what is the use of doing more science if the animals you're going to work on are going to die? And I thought, I'm going to give my time for the animals stay alive if I can do my bit.
1: It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, it is as if the kind of nature of academic science kind of constrained it to be able to kind of communicate at a really important time. Well, and I think, I mean, Do you think it's because they've got better or do you think the scientists oh, have got lot better? Oh, a lot better.
0: Much better. And scientists now are not threatened with the sack as they were in my time. I, I would have been sacked if, if the then director of my institute. Could've, but he couldn't, I had tenure.
1: Do you feel like now, 2022, do you feel like the public has a lot more understanding? Do you feel like there is a lot more, uh, I guess momentum towards actually positive change? it's huge.
0: It's huge. Back when I started getting on my soapbox, I would not talk about, I learned not to talk about mass extinctions because if I was gonna try to persuade uh, the audience, whatever that may be, that climate change was real, it is happening, it will happen to you, it's serious. That was a hard enough message to put over. But when I then went to the next step, this is the forerunner of a mass extinction. Come on. I, so I didn't talk about that for years and years and years, although it is by far the most serious aspect of climate change.
1: I think you're right. It's probably the most serious aspect. as We talked about the fact is that it feels like a long way away. I think one of the changes we've seen now is that People feel like we're actually experiencing climate change now. Now, one of the things that you're now doing is to try and (laughs) deal with that problem, and you're building a living coral bank. You've got this ambitious plan of building this kind of coral ark. Can you talk me through that? How does the coral ark work?
0: Well, it's just like a seed bank or go to a botanic gardens or a zoo that um, keeps plants or animals going when they're going extinct in the wild.
1: How do you do that, though? Do you... Do you take yeah. bits of coral back and, you know, like, where do you keep them? Keep what them in an aquarium. So you're building a giant aquarium. Where yeah. is this aquarium going to yeah. be?
0: Well, if we can, we haven't got any funding, but if we can, we want to keep all species of coral alive. You can keep corals in an aquarium forever and they grow and you can ch- chop up bits and, and move the bits to other aquaria. You can form a network of aquaria that uh, keep corals alive effectively forever. The plan is not to be able to repopulate reefs when we get over our climate crisis. We won't get over our climate crisis for centuries, if not millennia. It's going to keep on and keep, you can't, the earth doesn't move quickly. It moves very slowly Mm. and it is starting to move um, as it has in the past. But what, if we keep these species going in Aquaria. It means that clever people who run, run, say, genetics labs can find ways of making these corals more tolerant of temperature. I think what we're hoping for is geneticists to um, get temperature-resistant corals in aquaria going. It's very easy to breed up corals in aquaria. In aquaria, they also release the egg and sperm larvae, and so one coral colony, can produce millions of larvae. So it is quite possible. In fact, it's almost obviously not easy, but certainly doable to reseed whole reefs with temperature resistant strains. And that is technically possible and scientifically quite feasible. What we need to do is to keep those corals going until those geneticists have done their thing. And they produce temperature resistant strains of these corals put them
1: back on the reef. Is, is this not going to happen naturally as well? Are there going to be, are there naturally more temperature resistant corals that are thriving well, with the change? I mean, are we trying to save the past in a sense?
0: We're not going to be able to save reefs that look like they do now. We're just not. Mm. Um, the, the average coral has a generation time in decades. So if natural selection were to do all this, we're looking at multiple decades of maybe change, maybe not. It's a very slow process. Humans have got to be able to speed up evolution uh, by technical means in laboratories, and they can. Um, this can be done. This has to be done if we are to keep coral reefs going. Mm. It won't be in time to stop, I think, the next mass extinction. I think that's already starting. If you look at the Great Barrier Reef, well over half of the Great Barrier would be quite useless for being a, ha- a home for other species. And we've got this phenomenon of time lag. We've, we're have we heating the ocean. we have putting the flame under the kettle. It's warming, but it's a very big place, the oceans. It is warming incredibly slowly. So what we are seeing now is a response to conditions that were uh, that existed around about the turn of the century. Mm. So even if we stopped all the warming now, the oceans would not be equilibrating to what is already in the atmosphere for another 20 or so years.
1: It's depressing to hear that kind of thing, particularly with the reef, because the reef feels like the canary in the coal mine in a sense. It is. It's the first thing that's affected. It's being affected the most. It's hard to find positive stories there. Are there any other initiatives that are giving you hope in terms of the reef?
0: Well, I (laughs) I take hope from almost anywhere possible, but (laughs) the main hope comes from technology. And the other source of hope is that um, people like me think, oh, we know all about corals. But in fact, take a closer look. We don't. Corals are amazingly inventive organisms. And that's where my hope largely rests. Maybe the corals Deeper down, the reef slopes are less prone to bleaching. Maybe they can save the day. Um, I get hope from all these sorts of maybe things we don't know about yet.
1: Let's look to the future, and I guess your future as well. Um, The last few years you moved from the house you built in Townsville, you moved to the Atherton Tablelands. What prompted the move? Um, Escaping climate change. So you moved from fear of the effects of climate change. And what particularly, uh, what effects of climate change were you worried about in Townsville?
0: The uh, relentless increase in temperature, but also um, now uh, the coastal cities of Queensland built on floodplains. They're going to go under, they will go Mm. under. Mm. There's no possible doubt about that. And so that's going to bring a lot of social upheaval, obviously, housing, Mm. expansion of cities, And so my partner and I, we just, we gave a couple of seminars to our children about why we needed to move. We had a lovely place near Townsville and we didn't want to leave it. And it wasn't threatened by sea level rise, it was uh, 40 metres above Mm. sea level. But we wanted to have a place that um, our kids could enjoy, uh, that was self-sustaining and also where we could make a more positive contribution to land development.
1: Well, I want to ask you about this because you, you know, you're interested in conservation, not just underwater, but also on the land. What are the things you're doing to try and regenerate the land there?
0: For better or for worse, we bought a whole lot of land. We're looking at over 500 acres of rolling grasslands, rivers, rainforest, oh, it's a fabulous place. We're going to plant tens of thousands of trees, and we're going to make a corridor between a little uh, national park that our land spreads into, and the big world heritage at the other side. And we've got a couple of neighbors that will participate in this, but we're going to make a corridor. And a, a cassery then is going to be able to walk from one to the other and back, and so on. It's partly um, a selfish thing. Uh, I built a tree house in (laughs) in a garden, great big tree house in a gigantic fig tree. And um, we had tree kangaroos scrapping on the roof of the the tree house. (laughs) Crashing, banging and arguing as tree kangaroos do. I've always loved rainforests. I just always have. I wanna ask you
1: actually talking about tips. You've been, it uh, been over 50 years campaigning for conservation. You've spoken for many years about climate change. You were a lone voice at certain times in that. Now today's young people are arguably growing up in a, in a time when it's accepted or at least it's, it's the norm to think that climate change is yeah. real. What is your advice for young people today who are wanting to be take action, whether it be in the scientific community or as activists, what's your advice to young people?
0: My advice to young people is to be able to think Um, And to think and to allow yourself, give yourself permission to think. I had a particularly bad school career. I mean, it couldn't be worse. I failed almost all exams in my entire school career. Although I tried, I just can't learn what people say I've got to learn, whether it's history or geography or biology or physics. I've never passed a maths exam in my life. (laughs) I love maths. So I often... As a priority, I love speaking to kids, school kids, and uh, young students. I think it's tremendously important to persuade children just to think and to take charge of their thoughts and don't do what they're told to do. I love to encourage kids to do their own thing, and it doesn't matter what it is, um, I had an aquarium, and Oki was in that aquarium, and I thought a lot, a lot about octopus or the little bugs I saw. I saw little critters feeding, and once you see this going on, you look at their little faces and sharp eyes as a child. You look at their eyes and wonder what the hell are they seeing, and so you just have to have that little kernel of interest, and then it just grows. It never goes backwards. It will grow, and maybe there are teachers, or maybe they work in a bank, but whatever it is, that interest will be there. And how important is it to get to young people? Because they will learn not to be pushed around by what's socially acceptable, what the teacher says you need to learn, And teachers themselves have changed. They realise that, all right, they've got to follow a curriculum, but they can also instill wonder and uh, interest in in, in pupils.
1: Well, for many years, you have instilled wonder and interest in pupils and many other people. So congratulations. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Charlie Varon for uh, (laughs) not just a wonderful conversation, but a wonderful career as well. follow the program online. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit the 100 Climate Conversations exhibition or join us for a live recording. Go to 100climateconversations.com. Thank you again for joining us and thank you, Charlie Varon. I look forward to seeing the next 10 years of what you achieve with your climate arc and everything else.